The following message is from the 2017 IBCD pre-conference with Chris Moles on the topic of domestic violence. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, feel free to buy a book. Buy two or three. They make great stocking stuff. Not really. <laughs> That's not true. Uh, I have, unfortunately, I have had uh, individuals, and it's such a desperate topic, uh, I have had individuals who've contacted me and said, I gave my husband your book, and I was like, oh, no, don't know if that's such a good idea. So maybe I should start off with this, um, since I've already cracked a, a couple jokes. I don't take myself too seriously, so I would appreciate it if y'all would join me in that. Uh, we've got a long day with real heavy stuff. And I remember early on in the process when I was first starting in this work about 10 to 12 years ago, I had a um, supervisor, somebody uh, from the state, so it was a secular monitoring agency. She came in and she was watching me facilitate a group and asking me questions. And and afterwards, she said, Chris, she was not happy. You are far too jovial with these guys. They are not your friends. They're here to be punished. Like, oh. So I pushed back a little and I said, look, I, I know they're not my friends. I get that. We're not hanging out afterwards. That's, that's not what we're doing. But I feel like if, if I don't approach them as human beings, then I'm going to burn out really quick and they're not going to have any hope. Right? So when I teach and talk, I don't mean I'm not trying to be, make anything light about our t- topic, but uh, we are going to have a little bit of fun because if we spend... Uh, four straight hours or whatever today and a couple more tomorrow if you join me in those sessions. It is disparaging, the information we're talking about, okay? So feel free to laugh. It's okay. We're going to have a good time and we're going to learn a little bit about the hope that's in the gospel. Okay, so who am I? My name's Chris Moles, as Jim said. Uh, This topic is what is domestic violence? We're going to try to give an overview today. And so the question to the house may be, why me? Why am I up here? Why some pastor from West Virginia uh, is going to be speaking on this? So let me tell you a little bit about my story so you kind of know where we're coming from. I pastor a small church in a small town in a small state. So the state of West Virginia has less than 2 million people. And it is a large, if you flattened us, if you ironed out West Virginia, we're called the mountain state. If you ironed us out, we'd be the biggest state in the country right? But we just happen to be all smushed together. So there's less than 2 million people living in this isolated area. So we're actually the only state completely in the Appalachians. So we're the only true Appalachian state. Uh, We're all encompassed in there. So a lot of rural environments, a lot of country folk, and so a lot of small towns. So my town, uh, less than 1,400 people in my town, a church I pastor is between 30 and 40 folks. So nothing huge, nothing big. About 12 years ago, a friend of mine approached me and I had been teaching part-time in corrections. I have no background in criminal justice, but I needed some money, Um, obviously. I mean, I needed to serve the community in which I was living. She came to me. I'd been teaching parenting class to drug offenders, and uh, I'd, it was really funny that, that, how that happened. Uh, they asked me if I could teach parenting classes, and I said, sure. I didn't have any kids yet. Um, 
And uh, they, what happened was they saw on my resume, I had counseling training. It was NANC track one and track two. They didn't know what NANC was. I wasn't going to tell them, <laughs> but they needed somebody. So I started teaching parenting and it was basically a dumbed down version of shepherding a child's heart. I gave the gospel to every group that we met with. And I thought, you know what? If they don't like it, they can fire me, right? Not a big deal. And that led, one thing led to another. I started teaching life skills and I just got involved in this probation department and have now been there for uh, 17 years total as an educator. I've been there longer than all the officers. And uh, one day my friend Kim, who was an officer at the time, she comes to me and she says, Chris, we're going to start this new program. It's called Batterer Intervention and Prevention. And if a guy is convicted of a domestic violence crime in our county, or if he served a domestic violence protective order or petition, might be a restraining order out here. The wording is different in every state. Or if he's recommended by the courts or CPS, any, all kinds of referral systems, then he's got to come to our class. And I was like, okay, tell me more. She said, well, it's 32 weeks. And I was like, no, I'm not spending 32 minutes with these guys. That's how closed off I was, let alone 32 weeks. So she asked me again, and I said, no. She asked me again, and I said, no. Then the last time, she told me what they would pay me per hour. <laughs> and I said, you know, Kim, I think the Lord's calling me <laughs> to batter intervention. And that's a sad story, but... Rel- it's relatively true. Um, you can ask him, you'll get a different story. But mine, mine presents a lot better, I think. Um, so we started doing that work together, and that was a, about 12 years ago. Uh, we've lost count. I think we've worked in that environment with about uh, 400 guys, maybe, around that level. And uh, I was telling Jim beforehand, very much like parenting, I mean, what are they going to do, fire me? I mean, they know I'm a pastor. They know I'm a biblical counselor now. Uh, so we're going to deal with issues of the heart. And our group, uh, when we were keeping track, we lost some funding, so we're not keeping track of this. Our group was running one of the lowest recidivism rates in the state, meaning our guys were not reoffending. When they would ask uh, our opinion on that, why are you guys so successful? Or why do people point to Putnam County as the standard in West Virginia or what have you? Then we'll usually say, well, we may be the only program that addresses the heart. And since then, uh, you know, we had the opportunity to, to write the book uh, while I was in seminary. I went to Faith Seminary in Indiana and was able to write the book. And now we do a lot more of this training, equipping. Here's what I found. State after state after state's losing their funding when it comes to addressing the needs of victims and perpetrators. All right. Most of the funding through like VAWA or VOCA, the, the two uh, national federal acts, Violence Against Women's Act and the uh, Violence of Crime Act, most of those funding go to victim services. And even that's being cut. There's very little effort to fund perpetrator accountability. We'll talk some more about that in the next hour. But I believe the Church of Jesus Christ has an opportunity to step in the gap, both in the area of victim care and perpetrator accountability. I say this about victim care. I love victim care. And Jim's right. There's some really good material out there and more being produced. Praise the Lord for the, the next wave of biblical counseling. If you've been following the resources, it's astonishing to see how biblical counselors are moving from sin to suffering to society. And it's like this next wave we're seeing more good resources about sexual 
sexual um, assault. We're seeing more good resources about domestic abuse, addiction, like we're going to talk about in the coming days. It's an exciting time to be in the movement. And with talking therapy dying, government agencies closing down, the church can fill a gap. Uh, maybe like we never have before. I love victim care. There's great resources out there. But here's my philosophy. If we help a victim, we've helped that victim. Worthwhile, redemptive work. Is Jesus interested in people who are suffering? Yes. If we help a perpetrator, then we may have changed the course for that victim and any future victim. You can change an entire generation you can help a man, and I say this all the time, we, you know the old uh, lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, but you can feed him crackers? Nobody? <laughs> the work that we're calling you to engage in or to think about is can we help men become so thirsty for servant leadership and gospel-centered life as a husband that they take part in it? We can't make anyone do anything, can we? but we can invite them into something life-changing. All right. In order to do that, we're going to cover uh, some topics today that hopefully will help you begin that process. And then I'll invite you to, to dialogue with me uh, this weekend and possibly into the future if you're interested in some other options on how we can maybe help each other do this work. Uh, let's begin by talking a little bit about why we're here. You may recognize this verse. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. What a great uh, rubric for biblical counseling. Amen? Okay, four of you agree. Excellent. For the rest of you, I'll try to convince you. No, this is good. We are to be patient with everyone. That's one of the things when the lady said to me, you're far too jovial. Yes, there are times to be hard in a good way. Speak the truth, but we always speak the truth in love, don't we? I hope so. I hope so. Let me give you just a real pushback on this idea of men need, uh, men who are abusive need to be bullied. You ever heard that? Well, here's what I'll do, Chris. I'll take the biggest deacons I've got and we'll go to his house, right? I hear this all the time. Here's, here's my thought on it, guys. I don't think you can bully the bully. I think when you bully the bully, all you do is reinforce his worldview, which is if you're bigger, stronger, faster, meaner, you can get what you want. The gospel isn't a bullying movement, is it not? It's Jesus inviting us into something different. We want to be persuasive, while at the same time, we want to be resolute and firm in our beliefs. So, yeah, we want to be patient with everyone. We want to help the weak, so we've got to be engaged in victim care. That means we've got to move a little bit away from what the church has historically done, which is being dismissive, in particular of women, being dismissive of the extent of abuse, start listening a little bit more like good biblical counselors should, and engage in people who, with people who are suffering. We need to encourage those around us, but yes, for our topic today, we need to admonish, warn the unruly. We need to offer correction. So in order to do this, I want to share with you a little bit about what we're talking about. Because when you hear the word abuse, you could have 20 people in the room and you could ask them to describe or define abuse and you're going to, you might get 20 different definitions. True? If you've ever worked in particular with a victim and they say to you, I'm being abused, you, you know that the next step is to ask them to define their terms, right? You've got to start pulling the rope to get more information. What does that look like in your life? 
What are you experiencing that would lead you to believe that? It's not that we're doubting the victim. We just need more information to determine the categories. So today, we're going to be talking primarily about this aspect of abuse, what we call coercive control. The ongoing use of coercive and controlling actions targeted at a victim. So you have a target of abuse. I don't know, this may not be in your notes. This may have been added on if you're frantically looking. Are you frantically looking? Psych, got you. I know, just... (laughs) I added this on, so please, stay, stay. We'll get to the notes eventually. It's okay. For all of you who have to... I don't even know if there's blanks on this one. This is really going to kill you. No blanks? This includes acts of intimidation and violence, which reduce the safety and sanity of the victim. Now, in our culture, when you hear the word battery, you typically think legal terms, don't you? Physical force used to assault another person. You might think, well, is it legal or illegal? That's the big question I get from pastors, which is crazy when you start to think about it. Not crazy. I don't want to call you crazy. But it is interesting, as you think about it, is it not, that we're not law enforcement officers, and yet our first question is, well, is it legal or illegal? The first question should be, is it sinful? Is it glorifying God? Can you glorify God being an intimidating, dominating person in your home? Hmm. Better questions, right? So for our talk today, we're not going to be looking at battery from a legal definition. We're going to be looking at it from a philosophical definition. That this is about coercive control. Power over. In the next hour, I'll hopefully help illustrate that a little better. But that's the first type of violence we might experience or find in the counseling room. The second might be resistive. This is the the second most common form of violence we'll find in the counseling room, at least from my experience. This includes both legal and illegal use of force, which is used by victims of domestic violence. So what we'll have sometimes, and it's almost always men dominating women and women resisting. There are exceptions. But right now, uh, statistically, we're talking 85% of victims are female. 95% of emergency room visits related to domestic violence are women. Uh, There's, you know, you hear it all the time. Like I hear this story quite a bit. It's like, well, my uncle knew a lady and she used to chase her husband down the street with a frying pan. He used to beat him up. I think it's the same woman. The story just gets circulated because everywhere I go, you hear anecdotal responses. But typically what you're going to find is one person dominating by abusing power one person resisting. And just because we're good complementarians, hopefully, if you're not, we'll, we'll get you saved later. Just kidding. You can be out there. But if, if we're going to support a complementarian worldview, then this is actually going to make sense to us because with great power comes great responsibility. And men have been through creation given a certain level of power through society also given a certain level of power. Agreed? So power and position can easily be abused by men Women have their own ways of sinning. Amen? And all the men said amen. (laughs) But this particular topic, it's primarily a men's issue, even though there are women involved. In the counseling room, don't be surprised, though, if you have victims who are using violence, force, and sinful resistance in response to abuse. For instance, one of the groups that I lead is a women's group every Tuesday morning. We have a women's group for women convicted of domestic violence crimes in our area. We have learned over the years, and it matches up nationally to the statistics we're finding nationally, that 80% of the women in our groups are victims resisting violence. 
After years of domination, she hit him with a baseball bat. She should not have hit him with the baseball. Please don't hear me say that that's a good thing. That's a bad thing. But the motive is different, isn't it? And you'll find also that about 10% of the women are ornery women who are violent. You will have about 10% abusive women. The other 10%, surprisingly enough, are in same-sex relationships nationwide, which is something that culturally I don't think the culture wants to explore, but it's certainly something looking into, which is the amount of violence within same-sex relationships. Uh, We don't have time to go into all that, but it is an interesting uh, piece. The last area you might find is non-battery-related violence. This does not involve a pattern. This is probably an instance of abuse. And it does not include attempts to control or resist control. This is the couple who, in a heated argument, one person slightly pushes the other person and goes, whoa, wait a minute, or punches a hole in the wall and goes, oh, this is not good. i got to get help. You see the difference? It may be an instance of violence that does qualify for the term domestic violence, but it's not coercive control. That's what healthy relationships look like, is someone who loses it immediately seeks help. Is this making sense, ladies and gentlemen? Okay. Let's look at some definitions. Here's the large definition that I use when I'm training workers. Several years ago, I was doing a training of uh, Department of Corrections workers. It was all prison workers. 200 prison workers. Like, that's huge. Like, we've got that many prisoners in West Virginia? Crazy. But we're doing this training, and I uh, throw the tree model, root and fruit, on the board, and I walk through how everything begins in the heart, and it creates motives, and then we do what we do because we want what we want. You know, Biblical Counseling 101. And this lady right in the second row shoots her hand up, and she's like, excuse me, excuse me. I'm like, yes, ma'am. She's a corrections worker at the Federal Prison for Women, and she says, where did you come up with that? It's brilliant. (laughs) And I said, well, I got it from Jesus. And she said, no way. And so we spend five minutes dialoguing while the whole group listens as I explain Luke chapter 6 and Jesus' model for the heart. It was really cool. But all that to say, this would be the definition I might use with them. It's helpful. Number one, domestic violence is a pattern of abusive behavior. So think, um, think pattern, not event. This is one of the catching points for biblical counselors. S- similar to the old adage where we used to warn each other not to go on a sin hunt, You remember this? Hopefully you're not doing that anymore. We will catch an incident and we will hone in on the incident. And that's actually really helpful for abusers. Here's why. If I'm abusive and I can get you to hone in on one poor mistake that I've made, one sinful mistake I've made, I will gladly own it and spend weeks dealing with it if I can keep you away from the rest of the stuff I'm doing. If I'm that manipulative and controlling that I control people in my life, I'm more than happy to control you. So if you find one piece of fruit, like I punched a hole in the wall, I will be glad to stay there as long as you're willing to work on it. That's why data gathering is essential to this work. Because we're looking not for an incident, but a pattern. It's a pattern of abusive behavior in any relationship that is used by one partner to gain or maintain power and control over another intimate partner. Domestic violence can be physical, sexual, emotional, economic, psychological actions or threats of actions that influence another person. This includes any behaviors that intimidate, manipulate, humiliate, isolate. I wish I could get them all to end in eight, but I can't. (laughs) 
<laughs> frighten, terrorize, coerce, threaten, blame, hurt, injure, or wound someone. The reason why I bring this up in a biblical counseling conference is sometimes we get hung up on, well, Chris, I understand physical abuse, but the emotional abuse, it just seems weird. What I would encourage you to do is start imagining a coercive control as fruit on the tree. And an emotionally abusive incident might be one fruit. There may be another one over here that connects to it. Another one over here that connects to it, right? So you've got a guy who's prone to name calling. You may say, well, name calling's bad, but is it abusive? Well, we're going to pull the rope to see, well, is he also punching holes in the wall? Is he also taking the car keys? Does he limit her cell phone use? Is he checking her Facebook? You see what I'm doing there? I'm looking for more evidence of coercive control because I want to know if we're dealing with a pattern or an incident. Because the danger is this. If I, if I only deal with an incident, then I may quickly turn to blame the victim. Because if she would just do A, B, C, and D, he wouldn't do that. Make sense? I really want to get a clear picture. Here's my definition that you'll find in the book. The book that you can buy in the bookstore. Buy multiple copies of it. <laughs> That domestic violence is first an abuse of power. We'll talk about this in detail in the next hour. Manifested through selfishly motivated patterns of behavior. There's the patterns. Driven by pride. Intended to exercise or maintain control over one's partner. The motivation here is key, and that's power and control. I want to share with you one of the first things that I learned. You'll see this in your notes under two wheels. Yes, these are secular models, and what I have done is I have taken what I learned from the secular world, the descriptive nature. We talk about this, right, where psychology and secular studies do a good job at describing problems, but the Bible has a real prescriptive nature to it. It helps us see where that comes from. This was very helpful for me. As I began to learn about the tactics, I was able to then put them through a model that I thought was consistent with uh, Jesus. And I found this to be helpful. So I wanted to share this with you. In fact, one of my friends, uh, Pastor Brad, he keeps these wheels taped to the side uh, table of his desk. And he references them when he's in a marriage counseling situation. He will pull that out and reference them to start asking questions to see, are we dealing with abuse here? If he's got some concerns. So uh, the first wheel is the power and control wheel. It was developed by the Domestic Abuse Intervention Project in Duluth, Minnesota. And uh, it shows physical, sexual, emotional, and financial tactics that batterers use. So they interviewed victims, took their experiences, and put them into this wheel. You'll notice that um, the power and control are at the hub of the wheel using power to control. Now, I would say that power is being abused. That power is not a bad thing. It can be a good thing, but in our case, it's being abused and controls the primary motivation. And you'll see that this is the center of the relationship. And domestic violence is not caused by uh, outside circumstances. We'll talk about this tomorrow, like being drunk, high, stressed, angry. What we're talking about, coercive control, is that an abuser wants power and control over their target, and they're willing to use any means necessary to get it. This is James 4, is it not? We do what we do because we want what we want. So I hear this. Well, Chris, I was drunk at the time. Or it was self-defense. I had one guy tell me one time that his uh, willingness to throw his wife, then wife to the ground, and place his knee on her stomach to restrain her was self-defense because he was afraid she was going to hurt him. 
the guys in the group began to rally around him as if to say, that makes sense. Well, Chris, what if she had a knife? What if she could hurt him? The next question uh, from my partner was, was she pregnant? What do you think the answer was? Yeah. It was an amazing discussion because at that point, all the guys then went from supporting him to quickly turning on him. What? And we began to talk about why was it important for him? What did he want when he restrained his wife in a way that put the baby in danger? Make sense? That's why pulling the rope, getting more information is important. I once worked with a man who, um, he had been out late, uh, like early, early in the morning. He hadn't called his wife. He hadn't checked in. She was getting worried about him. She got in the car early the next morning and drove around town looking for him. She's kind of frantic. She finds him at a friend's apartment playing video games. Are you with me so far? Okay, she lost her temper, probably should not have done this. Uh, actually, she should not have done this. She, they yelled at each other, and then she slapped him. Oh. And then he closed his fist and clubbed her. So in the discussion, I said to him, so let me ask you, do you believe it's okay to hit women? He said, well, of course not. And I said, and yet you did. He said, well, if she hits me first, I'll hit her back. I said, oh, so you do believe it's okay to hit women. Well, no. Well, what if she hits you? Well, I'll hit her back. If she's going to hit me like a man, I'm going to hit her back. To which I said, so you do believe <laughs> it's okay to hit women. I thought it was a teachable moment. We had a group of about six guys at that point. I thought it was a teachable moment for the other guys. I really thought, okay, we're going to get all these other guys on board. And after the fifth time of asking him, another guy said, he's done told you six times. He doesn't believe it's okay to hit women. <laughs> And yet he does. And so we had this conversation then about our, how our beliefs drive our behavior and that he had given himself a caveat, hadn't he? That while her sinful action was sinful, it did not justify or permit his response, did it? That he has a certain level of responsibility not to retaliate in a damaging way. The greatest case study we've seen in the last few years is Ray Rice, is it not? I've had men tell me, well, she hit him first. Yeah, she should not have hit, hit him. But if you've seen the video, I thought he killed her. Right? And I really do think as a complementarian, as somebody who believes that God created men to be a certain way in marriage and women a certain way in marriage, guys, I just think there's nothing in this world that can give us a green light to be domineering. Certainly, if we follow Jesus, what about the life teaching and ministry of Jesus gives us any green light to use power over? Each spoke of the wheel in front of you represents a category or a tactic of abuse. We'll later call this fruit. Uh, every violent relationship is different. In fact, John Henderson, if you've read his wonderful little book called Abuse, excellent book, he says, if you've seen one case of abuse, you've seen one case of abuse. While there's similarities, every victim's experience is different. Every perpetrator's use of violence is different. There will be similarities, but there will also be differences. Like the man who said to me, I would never hit my wife. And yet he was free to consistently punch holes in the wall. He'd become so prolific at punching holes in the wall that he kept spackling newspaper in the closet. Two things about that. Number one, it says how often he was punching holes in the wall, does it not? And two, 
it tells us how premeditated the action was. He was using it as a tactic of control. For instance, I have had guys tell me, Chris, if I can get what I want without using violence, I will because violence will get you in trouble. Hello? So when we only look for domestic violence that is physically assaulting another person and we don't take into consideration the other tactics of power and control, we may be uh, permitting this guy to be a respectable abuser while the victim still feels the weight of abuse. We'll get into that uh, later as well. I hope, I hope you're finding this uh, beneficial. Different, uh, the rim of the wheel represents physical and sexual violence. You can, you can see that. Some abusive relationships do not include this, but I will contend that every abusive relationship has the threat of this. Did you catch that? Not every abusive relationship will have physical or sexual violence, but every abusive relationship will have the threat of this. For instance, the young man I told you about who was punching holes in the wall, he was communicating something to his bride, was he not? Do not keep pushing. Back off. Or what might happen? You might be next, right? The fear is there. The threat is there. Like the gentleman I had one time who they were having difficulty in a relationship and she was not comfortable due to some past uh, actions engaging sexually. And so we were working on some things about intimacy and his responsibility. And he sends her a text that says, if you don't have sex with me, I'll find someone who will. Controlling? Coercive? Yeah. Taken in with all the other fruit on the tree, part of his pattern of abuse. All right, so here's what we're looking for. This could be the general categories. So as you're gathering data, you are going to want to ask some questions in this area. I have an inventory in the back of my book that I created, that I use, that uh, I give to men when they first sign up to work with me. So when a guy comes in to do individuals with me, they have to fill out this uh, inventory. It's called the behavior inventory. It's very creative. Now, it has uh, questions related to all of these topics that we're going to cover. Do not expect to get all your data from that inventory. Here's my experience. Why I give them the inventory is this. Rarely will a guy acknowledge everything he's doing. It is beyond rare. Because the, the heart is so wicked, right? And at this point, he's been manipulating, coer he's been using coercion. The odds are pretty good that he's not wanting to cooperate with me. I get that. I'm cool with that. But the odds are also good I never have a guy leave it completely blank. I usually have at least one acknowledgement. Again, his tactic may be, well, if I can focus on this, then I can keep Chris distracted from this. My goal is to use that as a foothold that gets me more and more data. So that's how I use the inventory, and all of these are covered in that inventory. And so you might find one aspect of abuse that then you can start to draw attention to the others to say, okay, this guy needs some help, right? This is the issue, is his heart. Of course, you know physical abuse. That's probably the most easy to identify, things such as hitting, slapping, shoving, grabbing, pinching, biting, hair pulling. This type of abuse, I think, also denies the partner medical attention. And in our area, this is huge, forcing the partner uh, into drug and alcohol addiction. 
I have found many, many men that I work with who have been the supplier for their spouse. Because if they can get her hooked on a substance, then they maintain control. I can see it in your face. It's pretty dastardly, isn't it? It's wicked. But be aware that that does happen. I had one gentleman who uh, insisted that he was in the right for restraining his wife because his wife was using drugs while she was pregnant. And he went on and on and on about how he hates it when people hurt children. Uh, Again, we were in a group setting, so the guys were all kind of colluding with him. Yeah, it makes sense, man. What do you want him to do? Let his wife hurt the kid? You know, as if that's the only options, right? He either hurts her or she hurts the kid. There's no middle ground. And um, so then, you know, I asked, what is it that you're here for? Like, you were convicted of something other than domestic, right? Yeah. Well, what was it? And he hem-hawed and hem-hawed and said, no, no, you need to tell us. What was it? Well, it was possession with the intent to sell. So you're a drug dealer? Yeah. How did your wife become addicted to heroin? Who introduced it to her? He got quiet. Like, no, you got to tell us, man. Who introduced it to her? Well, I did. The next question was, have you ever sold drugs to kids? Not intentionally. Can you guarantee that none of the drugs you sold ended up in the hands of kids? Well, no. Then how do you stand in judgment over her, who you got addicted to this substance, for hurting a child when you're willing to hurt kids? It it twisted, turned quickly, right? But all we were doing was trying to get more data so he could be more self-reflective so that we could introduce him to hope. Make sense? All right. Uh, Sexual abuse, Uh, this is coercive uh, or attempting to coerce sexual conduct, contact, excuse me, or behavior without consent. If you haven't seen it, it it is for adults at this point. I wouldn't, you know, watch it in front of the kids. There's a British PSA about tea. Have you seen the tea? Google it. Put it in your Google machine. Some of you have. And they relate sexual consent to drinking tea. And (laughs) it's excellent. Like if the person's passed out, they don't want tea, right? That's basically the, <laughs> if the person says, I don't, I want tea. And then 10 minutes later, they don't want tea. They don't want tea, right? If they wanted tea last week, they, that doesn't mean they want tea the exact same time this week. It's, it's really a clever way to help get that point across, especially the men who struggle in this area. Uh, I hear guys talk about makeup sex. And so they start fights in order to engage sexually. And then once they engage sexually, they feel as if the problem is dismissed or over. She wouldn't have sex with me if she didn't forgive me. Emotional abuse, this is undermining an individual's sense of self-worth or self-esteem. I would use the word personhood. I think emotional abuse attacks the image of God in much the same way that physical abuse attacks the image of God. Because we don't just bear God's image physically. We have emotions because God has emotions. We feel because God feels. He gave us that. We feel imperfectly. We emote imperfectly. But if someone demeans you, they call you names, they put you down, they keep you down, it affects the image of God implanted on you. It says, you're not of value. Now, we understand, scripturally, theologically, we have little value. What did Jesus say? You're worth many sparrows. I I haven't priced sparrows lately, but I don't think they're worth a whole lot. But we're worth tons of them, right? But the... (laughs) The idea here is when we use our words to keep people in a place of no hope. Imagine being in a place for years that you're never good enough. It certainly can fit into the category. We'll do an exercise. Uh, I don't want to over church you. We're going to take a break here in a minute. 
Uh, we do an exercise in our groups, and I do it with individuals too, that I call uh, most hurtful and least hurtful. So on this side of the board, I'll put most hurtful. On this side of the board, I'll put least hurtful, or I'll send them a worksheet that has this. And then we'll walk through categories, and I'll start naming things. I said, so I want you, what I'd like you to do is whenever I name this tactic that you've admitted to or other men have admitted to, I try to take some of the ones they've acknowledged, then I take some that I've gathered over the years. And I just want you to help me categorize them. What's the most hurtful? What's the least hurtful? And the reason why I do this is I want to give them, give weight to their tactics. So here's what I might say. Slapping your partner. Most of the guys be like, well, that's pretty hurtful. Um, there's probably more hurtful things. Put it, <laughs> this is really funny that we do this. Put it almost to most. I'm like, okay, we'll put it right here. How about that? Cool. All right. What about uh, calling your partner a name? Well, what name? Let's just take the big ones, right? And so the, the ones that you wouldn't repeat in church, okay? Oh, yeah, that's probably even more hurtful than slapping. You think? Yeah, you better go to the left. Okay. And we'll go through all kinds of categories till you have an entire board filled up with, um, this is most hurtful, this is least hurtful. By the way, the, the one that always goes off the charts on most hurtful is calling her a bad mother. What's amazing is I've never had a man not recognize that. Double negative much? I know, my men always seem to recognize that. That it's very hurtful, and yet many men use it. So then you might have categories down here like uh, checking her cell phone or what have you. Here's the thing. The physical violence will run the gambit, won't it? And so will the emotional abuse. And the illustration is this, guys. Your words have power. Your choices have power. There's no way to accurately categorize how your coercive control is affecting your partner. You can't call one thing really hurtful and something not so hurtful. When you're demeaning the image of God in someone and when you're putting down someone to the point that they're losing who they are, it's hurtful. And I'll go over and I'll erase least hurtful. And I'll say, look, these are all some of the most hurtful things you can do to your partner. Does that help with the emotional abuse category? Because I know with biblical counselors, we struggle with this. Um, and I get it. I really do. I think we like words, which we do. Thank God we do. But we go, well, you can't hurt someone's love. You can't hurt someone's anger. The idea of emotional abuse is not that you're hurting their emotions. is that you're crushing them. Right? So we'll, we'll hopefully do an exercise this week to help illustrate that some more. Uh, economic abuse, the number one reason why women return to violent situations is economics. It's not restoration. It's not, uh, we want to make this work. It's not, everything is better. The number one reason why victims return before the process is complete, before safety is established, is economics. This is defined as making or attempting to make an individually financially dependent. This doesn't happen overnight, does it? This happens over time. Well, I take care of that, honey. There's no need for you to work anymore. I make plenty of money. Those are real innocent things, aren't they? Those can be mutually agreed upon things. Those can be headship submission things. But in the hands of a coercive controlling person, they can be a tool of destruction and confinement. You want to look for things like holding the finances over them, uh, withholding access to money, forbidding them from bettering themselves. This is a big one. No, you shouldn't go to school. You don't need to go to school. 
no, you don't need to take that course for work to be certified in that Microsoft whatever, right? No, you don't need to. The idea of you can't advance yourself. I don't need you. I don't want you to be marketable. If you're marketable, you might leave me. Expect abusive people, by the way, to have tremendous amounts of insecurity. The number one expressed emotion of abusers is anger. The number one uh, experienced emotion of abusers is fear. Now, fear, the fear is always flowing out of pride, so the fear is generally misplaced. Fear of man, fear of failure, etc. But uh, they can turn anger on and off. It's more of a tactic than it is an experience. But fear, however, is something that you're going to find a lot. And it motivates some of this control. Uh, psychological elements, um, this is just another category. Uh, causing fear, threatening physical harm to the partner, self, or family. Threats of suicide are a massive tactic. As you escalate, as you go up the ladder of escalation, don't be surprised if an abusive person is saying, well, I'll just kill myself. Or if you don't come home, don't expect to find me alive if you come home. It becomes a motivator because, frankly, the victim loves their partner, right? Yes. And they don't want to see harm done to their partner. And so the partner can threat. It's like uh, Sandy's slippery slope, right? The abuser will go the entire gambit. They might threaten homicide. They might threaten suicide. Whatever they can use to gain control. Destruction of property, uh, forcing isolation from school, friends, etc. Abusing pets, by the way, huge red flag. If a guy's willing to hurt an animal, then he's willing to hurt a person, typically. Also, strangulation is the number one safety concern. If you have escalated to the point that you're willing to place your hands around your partner's neck, you are one step from killing them. You, you might think this is rare. This is, it's insane how many guys are willing to go this far. If you go that far, the next step is to kill someone. It can take five seconds to kill someone by strangulation. Okay? Uh, let's look at some of the tactics. You know this, Luke chapter 6, we'll talk more about this in the next hour, uh, that good trees bear good fruit and bad trees bad fruit. Let's look at some of the fruit. So this is some of the things that I'm looking for. I actually do a tree model with every guy that I work with individually. So if you work with me individually, the last thing you'll receive is a report of everything we covered for your elders or your accountability team, and you'll receive a tree model where I work through the fruit, motives, heart, gospel, new heart desires, new motives we expect, new behaviors we should see over the next six months. Okay? So it's very much a put off and put on model that I work with the guys. So we're going to look at some of the fruit. And what I do is I keep this while I'm working with the guys. I usually do three months and six months with guys. My groups are eight months. (laughs) So by the way, this doesn't change overnight. In fact, with my six-month six group, I just ended a six-month group with, the, with guys, handing them over to people in their church, and they have another six months of accountability before they start marriage counseling. That's how severe the abuse was. All right? And we'll talk more about that as we go along. we got all day. Uh, are you wore out yet? This is like the most depressing topic ever, isn't it? <laughs> what keeps me going is hope. There are so many people in our world today, guys, Christians who are involved in domestic violence prevention, and I shouldn't say prevention, I should say intervention, because I don't think they really desire prevention, because they don't believe that abusive people can change. They are willing to neuter the gospel. I hope we're not. 
Is it easy? No. Are we going to have a great batting average? Possibly not, right? We're going to, are we going to lead them to water and feed them crackers? I hope so. So we desperately want to see people change. Okay, here's some of the fruit we're looking for. Intimidation. This is one of the ones that I'm looking for typically. Are you willing to use certain tactics to intimidate your partner? Psalm 34 says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their names from the earth. I love the language of God toward oppressors in the Bible. If you're an oppressive individual and you're typically prideful, God has some pretty hard things to say to you, doesn't he? It's imperative that we love men enough to tell them and show them how opposed they are to God. Is it not a loving thing to do? Yeah. Because they are going to lose. God is going to get his. Better to be humble now than humiliated later. Some things that we might see is making the victim feel afraid by looks, actions, or gestures. Uh, bowing up, getting big, becoming loud, things that men tend to have um, access to. Now, I have some men who say, my wife, you, she's really loud. And you know there's a difference. Guys, you know, right? God designed us a certain way. Our voices can be very, very powerful. And given time, energy, and motive, it can contribute tremendously to making people afraid. Uh, we may smash things, destroy property, abuse pets, display weapons. Uh, that's big at home. Everybody's got a gun or two or three. And um, uh, by the way, this is something important from a legal standpoint. If you are dealing with someone who's under a domestic violence protective order or they've been sentenced to a domestic violence crime federally, they're not supposed to own firearms because it increases the risk of domestic homicide if they have access to a gun. Um, that's just the way the feds operate. So we have found that sometimes our law enforcement officers don't want to take their guns because they know they hunt with their kids. And we have actually had church members. I had one guy I'm thinking of recently. He went to his friend's house and said, you're giving me every gun, every one you have. They're locking in my safe. And the guy fought him for a while, and he said, no, I'm not leaving this house until I get every weapon out of here. I've never seen so many guns. I mean, I'm, I was intimidated, and I work with guys like this all the time. Uh, and we cataloged everyone and put them in a safe. Uh, I once had a man who um, said to me, Chris, when I get angry, I destroy things. That's just how I vent. I'm like, well, tell me, what is it that you destroy? You know what the big one is? Cell phones. I'll just, oh, I'll just annihilate cell phones. I said, well, how many cell phones have you broke this year? He's like, I don't know, 10 or 12. <laughs> then I said, how many of them were your cell phones? Now, listen, listen. He said, well, I owned all of them. <laughs> Next question. Who was primarily using the phone? Whose phone was it? Want to take a guess? His wife's. This is not a random act of violence, sir, right? This is not, I get mad, I break a cell phone. If you broke 10 or 12 cell phones, primarily used by your wife, right, then it's intentional. So keep that in mind as you're asking questions. We're looking for intimidation. Uh, we're looking for emotional abuse, some of those categories. The words of the reckless proverb says, pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. 
This could be putting them down, making them feel bad about themselves, calling them names. Uh, For instance, I had a, a gentleman, everybody's got... I think everybody's got this. I don't know. Maybe California, maybe you guys are too sophisticated for this. But I found that most places in the country have that group of people that you're allowed to make fun of. Most places, it's me. Um, If you have a West Virginia joke, we'll just get this out of the way right now. I don't want to hear it. I've probably heard it. It's not as funny as you think it is. And, it, and really, really contemplate the humor in incest, dental hygiene, and poverty, because that's usually the jokes. Like, this is really not something we should be sharing. And yet the Appalachian's like, woohoo, you guys, you're funny. Okay. But I have found that most cultures have that group of people, and we are, no, we are not exempt in the mountains. There are certain counties that kind of fit the stereotype better than other counties. And in West Virginia, everything's done by county. You don't tell what town you're from. You say what county you're from. If the person's been there, they say what part, right? And then you tell them what part. So uh, there's a certain county not far from us that kind of has that reputation. And this gentleman's wife was from that county. Now, I'll tell you, being someone, this really spoke to me because of someone who's grew up uh, in a place that kind of gets mocked a lot. And, you know, when I went away to school in the Midwest or when I started traveling and talking and just constant bombardment, you know, of why I'm inferior because I was born a certain place is really weird. And I got to think he was intentionally using this. He would say when he got mad, you such and such county piece of trash. Now, could you imagine living with him for years upon years upon years? And in his fury, he would say, you such and such county piece of trash. And her entire life coming from that county, she knew that everyone around her thought the same thing, right? She already had that fear in her heart that nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of here, right? I always equate Galilee to West Virginia. I really think Jesus and I have a lot in common. Right? I really think Galilee was the redneck section. Because remember the, the little girl confronts Peter. Uh, this is what I do. Sorry, I'm off. I'll get back. Little girl confronts Peter. And she's like, I know you're Galilean. You talk just like him. And he's like, no, I don't. You know? Um, so in this case, this gentleman was using something precious to her. Something, I guess I should say, that was hard for her as a means of controlling her. Crazy making is part of this, uh, playing mind games, humiliation, making them feel guilty. I will say that uh, my experience with women's groups has been that when women come into our group or women come into counseling who have been victims, they own everything they've ever done. Yeah, I hit him. Yeah, I slashed his tires. Yeah, I did this. All sinful. All things need to be addressed. And I don't know what it is about us guys. Men's group, it's like pulling teeth. Those are the first things, generally, not always, the first things out of my guy's mouth usually is, she hit me, she slashed my tires. <laughs> it's amazing how many victims will assume guilt for everything. Do they need to own their sin? Yes. Don't hear me say that women don't sin. Y'all know better, hopefully. But it is amazing how often victims have been associated with guilt for so long in their homes that they just naturally gravitate towards it. Uh, Using isolation, that's controlling uh, what the victim does, what the victim sees, who they talk to, what they need, where they go. Limiting outside involvement, using jealousy. Uh, I see this from guys who, uh, it's not as bad now with the smartphones, but the old flip phones, they used to take the cell phone batteries out when they would go to work. I knew a guy who um, would mark the tires, he would take chalk 
He would mark his wife's tires when he left for work so he'd know if she had moved a car. So he could say, where have you been? He was never physically violent, by the way. But does that chalk mark make you feel icky? (laughs) That's bad. All right. Ridiculing family and friends, that's a big one. Oh, baby, can't we just spend time together? You're spending too much time with your mom. Your mom's driving me crazy. Can't you spend more time with us? In some instances, it might be a legitimate request, but in the hands of a coercive controlling person, it can be a tactic. Uh, Expect minimization, denial, and blame. This is a pretty common tactic. It's not that big a deal. Uh, I didn't do it. Or it's her fault, a substance's fault, somebody's fault, my mama's fault. Whoever conceals a sin, Proverbs says, will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Amen. And I tell guys, guys, look, it's time to own up. I don't, if you feel only 10% responsible, can we at least take 100% responsibility for that? Can we spend some time on the things that you've actually done? Because we're not getting anywhere blaming drugs or blaming alcohol or blaming her or blaming mama. We're not getting anywhere. And if we don't start getting traction, then we're going to have to stop meeting because it doesn't benefit you or me to sit here and spin our wheels. Reminds me of the Shawshank Redemption. You guys seen that movie? Of course you have. You got TNT. It's on every other hour. (laughs) Right? When uh, Andy comes to Red and Red informs him, everybody's innocent in Shawshank. Right? (laughs) Everybody. That's kind of the way it is in this work. Uh, Come on, let's face it. This is hard to confess. Nobody wants to be labeled with this. This is hard work to confess. But once the confession starts flowing, it's a beautiful thing. Because once a guy can realize that I'm willing to own this, then ownership of the next piece comes quickly, comes quickly. The biggest dilemma that I find is when a guy is truly processing repentance is they have, it's, they've taken too long to seek help. And she's so frustrated and angry, bitter, resentful, that the process of restoration is difficult. Difficult. That's why we got to do more preventative work. Hopefully we'll talk about that some today too. Uh, another tactic using the kids. I often think about um, uh, that passage uh, regarding if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. Uh, another tactic is what we call male privilege. Jason Meyer coined a term. Uh, he's the pastor, lead vision pastor at Bethlehem Baptist now. He coined a term, I think it was a year and a half ago, called hyperheadship. I really like this message. It's called Fooled by False Leadership. You can find it at uh, hopeingod.whatever. And uh, hyperheadship. It was very helpful in this area. Treating her like a servant, making all the big decisions, acting like the master, being the one to define the roles. And you'll find spiritual abuse in this category. I've had so many men who will take Ephesians 5, uh, 1 Peter 3, Colossians 3, and pick the verses they like, right? You know, what's your favorite verse in this passage? Wives submit to your husbands. Well, why are you reading her mail? Like, why don't you read yours? <laughs> like, God wrote some specific stuff to you too, right? Such as love, um, uh, caring for her the way you care for your own body. Wonderful, wonderful reminders. Economic abuse. Um, we could use that uh, First Timothy passage there as well. You can see all that in your notes. I was part of a study a few years ago called Wider Opportunities for Women, obviously, because I'm a woman. That's a joke. Um, I'm not a woman. 
Uh, and they found that there were 10 things, and I wish I'd brought the list for you. I do apologize. Um, they found 10 things that victims in social services needed, but that government services couldn't provide. I looked at the list for five seconds, and nine of the 10 the church could do now. Now. How to fill out a job application, how to write a resume, how to drive a car, <laughs> paying for an apartment. You got to think, I mean, it's probably this way here. In West Virginia, our social workers are overwhelmed. The turnover rate's like two years on a social worker at home. They can't keep track of everything. Simple things like having a friend to walk along with you for basic needs. Well, the church, we can do that, church. Can we not? We can do that. It's amazing how much economics play into this and how many women, generally women, have low skills, low marketability, and feel the pressure, right, to not give the process time because they are financially insecure. We can meet a lot of these needs. And then lastly, another tactic you're going to be looking for is uh, coercion and threats, uh, making or carrying out threats, uh, threatening to leave, commit suicide, excuse me, report them to the authorities. I had an individual who, um, he was abusive, 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 abusive. One night he got drunk. He was belligerent. She got afraid. He came towards her. She threw something at him. He called the police. She went to jail. Okay. Now granted, her use of violence was illegal. But the police didn't do a proper predominant aggressor research to see why she was using it. Um, making them do illegal things, making a victim drop charges. In most states now, um, the victims can't drop charges. You probably know this if you've walked through with a victim. Uh, generally, if a victim doesn't show up to court, the state picks up the case. Because in the 80s and early 90s in particular, huge amount of pressure was placed on victims not to come to court in areas of uh, physical assault. So as you're doing your research, as you're pulling on the rope, as you're gathering data, that's some of the fruit that you're looking for. You want to be diligent in that. I tell folks I take weeks, weeks upon weeks gathering data. I'm fine with, I call it pulling the rope because we're going to find something new. Here's my thought. As I continue to pull the rope, the guy's either going to be able to get out of the ditch or have enough to hang himself with. One of the two. <laughs> And I mean that in a gracious, I mean that in a loving way, because we got to get to a conclusion some way. We got to know where we're going here, we're going there. Copyright 2017, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.